Hey, this is Michael Howie. Before we get started with this week's episode, I want to thank everyone for sending in their screenshots with their subscriptions. It really does help get the word out about the show to more people and ultimately help the animals. But there can be only two winners this week, Sharon R. and Nicole K. We'll be in touch to get you your shirts. And everyone else, please remember to save those screenshots because another contest will be coming soon. This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of August 28th, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 443 of Defender Radio. Bad Coyote the 2013 documentary that purports to explore the state of Atlantic Canadians during a cull of coyotes following the tragic death of folk singer Taylor Mitchell in October 2009 is now available to view online. Before I go any further, I must put forward a warning to potential viewers of this documentary. It has extensive scenes of dead coyotes being skinned by a trapper, coyotes in traps, and coyotes being shot. The interview that follows today also includes discussion of the death of Ms. Mitchell, Culls, and other upsetting content. The documentary was released online as part of the National Film Board's National Canadian Film Day this year. And in the last week, several listeners, supporters of the Fur Bears and friends, contacted me to let me know that Bad Coyote was available online for viewing, and the link to watch was being passed around. I watched the film and spent some time deciding how to respond. And this episode is the result of that decision. The write-up for Bad Coyote states that it asks if residents' fears of a new, quote, superspecies are justified, or if they're responding to fear-mongering. While many filmmakers would have gone to great lengths to sensationalize beyond the title, writer and director Jason Andrew Young made clear efforts to provide some balance. This was accomplished namely through interviews with Taylor Mitchell's mother, Emily Mitchell, who advocated for compassion to wildlife and an end to the cull, and Dr. Simon Gabois, a canid researcher at Dalhousie University. Though time is given to Dr. Gabois, frequently his scientific-based statements are cut down to simple sound bites and ultimately rejected by so-called folk logic of those who profit from the exploitation of coyotes without an opportunity for scientific rebuttal. Even the very question of what exactly happened on October 27, 2009, which led to the death of Miss Mitchell in the hospital the following day, isn't fully explored. And that's where my interview with Dr. Simon Gebois, an opportunity for discussion and in-depth rebuttals, begins on this week's episode. I'm going to start out with the the biggest question that I don't think there's an answer to because I kind of mm-hmm. want to get it out of the way. And yeah. that is, do we know what happened uh, on October 28, 2009 to Taylor Mitchell in Nova Scotia? My answer is no, we don't. And I think we'll never know mm-hmm. um, because... Uh, there were some witnesses uh, that saw the three coyotes about 10 minutes before the attack actually happened. Um, but nobody saw the attack. And then all you deal with basically is circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, making or drawing conclusions from circumstantial evidence is obviously very risky. And, um, you know, some people are cautious with that, others not so much. And um, honestly, I think we have pieces of information. Um, uh, but again, um, you know, it, it's it's just that, just pieces of information. And the full picture, I think we're still missing today. Um, I think what threw everybody off initially um, is when the first, when, some of the first responders uh, got there, including some people from Parks Canada. Um, some had the f- reaction, the gut reaction to say, at first, there's no way 
coyotes did this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, coyotes were not really on their mind initially, although there was one on scene. Um, they thought it was something else. Um, and, you know, when I was sitting in front of one of my colleagues at Parks Canada, I said, well, you were thinking what exactly, uh, you know, cougar, because there's rumors that there's cougars there. Uh, were you thinking black bear? And he hesitated for a few seconds and said, well, maybe black bear. But, you know, again, we don't see black bear or think of black bears doing this uh, in wildlife biology. I mean, it's it's not the kind of attack that we're used to. Mm-hmm. And and part of the problem, I think, is the, you know, coyotes, like most predators, are what I would call clean predators. They do uh, clean kills most of the time. Um, this was not it. It it was it was a messy one, and that's you know something that's really really difficult to explain. Yeah, and in the, I. Uh... And again, it's, you, there, there's a level of sensitivity we do have to have here, sort of add respect for, for all those involved. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what really happened, what we can say happened for certain, was the reaction to this news. Mm-hmm. Um, as you and I have discussed, there was uh, some individuals, there were some individuals uh, who were very clearly proclaiming, this is what happened, uh, particularly through the American media, who I think this was a... Uh, an oddity for them. So they kind of picked it up uh, and it went international, this story of this young woman dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and that led to this, 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 rev- I, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it, but I remember reading about it. Cause I, I was in the newspaper industry when this happened. Um, so of course we were all following it, but there was just this uh, almost visceral reaction of fear um, to what happened, even though there was no historic precedent for it. Um, mm-hmm. And today, this remains one of two cases um, where uh, a human being was killed by coyotes. And as we've said, there's questions about the second case. The other one, I think, was a, a child in a California backyard. That's right. Um, some time ago. So, like, it, it's... It, there, there was no precedence for this happening. And all of a sudden... All of these things start happening. The media starts talking about it. The locals start talking about it. Uh, uh, the government has to start responding to it. Uh, you you were in the Maritimes when this happened, were you not? Yes, yes. So, what was yeah. your reaction when you sort of heard this news? Were you were you studying coyotes specifically at that point? Did you have any kind of initial response to it? No, I, I had studied uh, at the time mostly in the nineties, but uh, you know, uh, a small part of the the 2000s, if you want, uh, you know, red foxes, coyotes, and wolves, actually mostly wolves. And um, uh, I was called that night. I was actually working mostly with the wildlife conservation canines on on reptiles, actually. So uh, not working directly with coyotes. But I was I was called by the um, by media. I forget who it was, actually. Um, and I had not heard of the attack yet. And that was the day of, I think, or the very next day. Um, I, I think it was the day of actually. Um, and they asked me, have you heard about this incident and what do you think? Um, I didn't know what to say. I was like, my first reaction was, I don't think it's a coyote. Actually, I said, it's most likely a, a dog or dogs, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because yeah. again, if you look at the stats, everybody knows you're much more likely to be killed by your own pet, your own dog than Absolutely. you are by, by a coyote. Right. So, um, but you know, I, I said, I'm sorry, I just don't know what to say. And I forget what they printed, but it was fairly cautious because I didn't want to commit to anything without any information basically. And then in the days or weeks that followed, more media called, but also I was contacted by Parks Canada. They knew I worked with uh, wild canids, and um, you know that's that's when the whole collaboration started. But initially, no, I I, I was, um, you know, it, it's my reaction. I guess was when I started to realize that maybe there was something to it, you know, by talking to people at Parks Canada and DNR, etc. I think I had the same reaction that most people did. Coyotes are very common. They're everywhere. And now suddenly we have to worry about them. And we never had to before, really. 
and and that's a weird feeling you know uh, i kept thinking about all those times where i, I was in the woods uh, alone um uh you know with coyotes around often that i would actually see and then suddenly um you realize was i in danger i mean obviously i don't want to believe that you know um i i, <laughs> I just I still today don't think I am, and I've seen coyotes since then. Uh, but yeah, it makes you think. It really makes you think. Um, and you wonder what, what went wrong, what happened, what could have created those um, uh, unlikely conditions, you know. Well, and that's interesting to hear. And that's, I think, very important because we can't dismiss that fear, uh, particularly for the people living in that area. Um while there are still so many questions we we will probably never have the answers to, um, and while this remains one of two incidents throughout recorded history, uh, you know, I, y you do have to understand and respect the fact that this, like, and especially I would imagine with, you know, immersing yourself in it, it, it starts to kind of haunt you. And that's even, you know, when I was writing about uh, West Nile virus, when it first became a thing, when I was writing about SARS, you know, I am by no means a, a germaphobe of any kind, but all of a sudden when you're at the grocery store, you start wondering how many people touch this interact pad and <laughs> why is that person over there coughing? Yeah. And I think it's just, you're sort of, you're exposed to it so much. Uh, how have you, and, and I'm very interested in your response to this because you do work uh, a lot with dogs. And I love reading about your work with dogs. Uh, uh, doing all the tracking and detection and stuff. How did you overcome, or at the very least sort of try and intellectualize and manage the, the fear that did develop following your exposure to this event and your work with it? Well, you know, I was, I was trying not to think about it. And, and when we were in Cape Breton, we knew that uh, we thought at least that most of the individuals that had been involved uh, had been killed. Uh, the, the female that was on site when the first responders arrived was killed for sure, uh, right there on site. And, uh, the other two males, if I remember well, were, um, were killed later. So then you think, okay, fine. So the individuals responsible for this are gone. Um, but then, you know, <laughs> you're still wondering what's going on and, and why this happened. And again, you see coyotes in the field and, and you wonder, there's one time I will remember, uh, where I was kind of forced to think about it. I was uh, out in the woods uh, on the highlands in Cape Breton with one of my students. Uh, with uh, one, I'm trying to remember if we had one or two tracking dogs that day. I think we had one. And um, there was a kill not too far. We knew this because we could see the birds of prey constantly going in a specific spot. Um in fact, we found a kill a day or two later um, with a bigger team of people. Um, but we were basically tracking the coyotes with the dogs, uh, with, with that dog, Zila. And at one point, we got into very, very heavy brush, as you can um, uh, encounter quite uh, frequently in the highlands in, in Cape Breton. And the sun was coming down, and we could hear them all around us. Uh, about, you know, an arc of about 180 degrees. And I remember feeling uneasy at some point. And yet we were two adults and a dog. Um, and I remember getting angry at myself for feeling that uneasy because, you know, any other time in the past, it would not even occur to me that there was a problem there. Um, so yeah, it changes you in a sense. And I think everybody, especially the locals that, that, you know, had some contact one way or another with that experience were somewhat traumatized as well. I wouldn't say I, I was traumatized. Obviously I didn't uh, deal with the, you know, um, the initial response and everything, but it, it messes up with your mind a little bit. I have to say, yes. Um, so then you, you kind of understand the general fear around this and you can see why some people would easily try to take advantage of it. And, and that's the other part that really angered me because I could see how easy it was to convince people. You know, I have a colleague, for instance, that lives a little bit outside of Halifax 
that told me after that incident that she would drive in her driveway and look around and then run to her house. Mm. And, and a year after the incident in Cape Breton, she was still doing that. So you have people in Nova Scotia and elsewhere in the world, very likely, or at least in North America, that probably stopped going out <laughs> uh, without having that on their mind, at least. You know, and it's just very disturbing. Well, it is interesting. And again, from my perspective in the media, and this, uh, as our audience knows, is something I have written and spoken a great deal about, is the sensationalism. And there's actually a recent case in PEI uh, that I think is interesting. And that was a young woman was out on a horse in a a wilderness type area, or at the very least a green area, we'll call it. Um, And her report is that a group of coyotes began running, running towards her in a V formation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why the V formation is necessarily important. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that was her. So she got scared and rode home. She waved her arms at them. They ran away. Uh, and that's the short version of the story. Uh, she saw coyotes, yelled at them. They left. Of course, when the CBC got their claws into it, it became a girl was stalked by a pack of coyotes in PEI. Her mother feared for her life. And in one caption on a photo, said that she was actually surrounded by the coyotes. Mm-hmm. So the media, uh, and, and this has been quantified uh, the, uh, and is measurable, the media does have a bias in reporting on coyotes and creating this fear. And in this case I'm speaking of right now, we have recently learned that uh, a landowner, I'm not sure if it's the mother of this young woman or someone else, has uh, uh, a... Uh, sorry, acquired a trapping permit from DNR and is setting out traps to kill coyotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as I know, there is no uh, number on the uh, the number of coyotes they can kill. And it's, a to me, a direct relationship of fear leading to action. Uh, and the media, of course, may be fanning the flames a bit on this. Um, and I think that's maybe where we need to sort of jump into things now. And, and sort of going from your experience in this, into some of the more the science angle of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that is said through the documentary's promotions, uh, you know, the, the actual National Film Board uh, is very brief and says that uh, they're investigating the perceived threat in the rural Maritimes following a deadly coyote attack. Uh, locals react to the attack by concluding that a new super species is infiltrating their communities, part coyote, part wolf. But is there any truth to the suspicion or is the response a result of fear and rumors? Of course, the IMDB version of that is it's new, it's fearless and very real. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's talk 1978, according to Wikipedia here, which is of course the most reliable source of scientific material. Um, It says that coyotes were first proven to exist in Nova Scotia in 1978. And this actually comes from a uh, uh, Nova Scotia uh, uh, website. Um, And these are, we we are going to presume that mix of coyote and wolf. So let's first talk coyote-wolf mix. Mm -hmm. Are these a super species or is it just sort of a, a kind of general adaptation as they moved west or moved east, sorry? So we're in the middle of a huge debate about this in science right now. There was uh, publications uh, uh, by John Way and others that actually have been going back and forth on, on this on this issue. Uh, some are pushing very strongly the idea that we're dealing with a pretty strong hybrid. And by this, I mean claims of uh, up to 40% wolf uh, genes, etc. When the early reports were actually saying about 8% wolf, 8% dog, actually. I think we also, interestingly, uh, selectively forget about the canine dog part of this, uh, which I think may actually be an equally important factor. But let's put it this way. Let's say that is 16% uh, of our coyotes here in the Maritimes and actually a part of Ontario and Quebec because we know it kind of started there, uh, 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 <clears throat> south and north of the Great Lakes. Um, let's say that 16% is, is wolf. I mean, the first question is, does this really matter? And that we don't really have the answer. Um, how would it matter? Well, it depends on the ecology of those individuals. So that means that those hybrids in Ontario, then in Quebec, and then further east in the Maritimes and Maine may have gone through a number of, you know, selective pressures. Uh, that make all of these coyotes, you know, in the shades of gray, if you want, different. 
Um, and how different? Is it behaviorally? Is it just the size? Which, by the way, there's very little evidence that that's a big factor. Um, my, my knowledge of the size issue by talking to people from DNR and Parks Canada is that what it may have done, this hybridization, is change the range. But the average is actually about the same that it used to be. We're still dealing with a 35-pound individual on average, but your minima and your uh, maxima are uh, uh, wider apart. So we've seen individuals that look like adults that were about 16 pounds, right? Or this is a big fox, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, a fairly small coyote. Um, but yeah, there's the occasional 40, maybe, maybe even 50-something pound coyote. Uh, now, don't believe anything beyond 50 uh, or at least 55 pounds. I think that's extremely unlikely. And usually people at DNR um, will say that they, they never have seen those carcasses, actually. Uh, uh, you know, um, so was it the fish it, was this big, kind of? Yeah, I think it is, you know. And, and unfortunately, also, <clears throat> especially, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> especially in the winter, coyotes have a tendency to look much bigger mm. than they actually are. Um, it's just unfortunate in a sense because it's more so than wolves. They, they balloon up quite a bit during the, uh, the winter because of their fur. Um, but yeah, I think we tend to magnify their size. And, you know, people often will say, look at this guy, you know, he's, he's huge, almost the size of a wolf. And then my first thought after working with wolves for 15 years is, wow, you have no idea how big wolves are. <laughs> because this is this is about this is about a third of the size of a wolf. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. um, so all of this is very relative. It's based on people's, I would say, maybe ignorance or lack of knowledge or exposure to uh, a lot of this wildlife. I mean, we we hear very similar stories about, let's say, bobcats versus lynx versus cougars. Uh, um, you know, everywhere in North America. Um, how many people will send pictures of a cougar in their backyard and then it's demonstrated later that it was a domestic cat, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the size thing does not impress me much. It, it's really not something that seems to be um, a reliable thing for anybody, for that matter, um, uh, unless you can actually literally put the animal on the scale and then have an idea of how big they are. I mean, it's, it's something that's uh, – we all have a tendency to be wrong about that. Um, so, uh, essentially the, the, the issue with hybridization is we don't really actually know because this is new. This is within the last 30, maybe 40, 50 years. If you actually look at the origin of that hybridization around the Great Lakes, um, we don't really know what it does to them. We, we have the feeling though, that if you look at the original coyote, the one that was mostly a Western species, mm -hmm. right from the Midwest, uh, to the West Coast, uh, that used to be called a prairie wolf, actually. It looks like, yeah, maybe there's some slightly bigger individuals. So, again, the maxima or the maximum has increased. Uh, there's a wider range, a wider distribution of weights. Um, although, again, still around the expected average. We know that they're slightly uh, more comfortable in wooded areas than the quote-unquote original prairie wolf. We know also they will form packs. That has more to do with the ecology than it has to do with anything else, actually. I'm not sure I would necessarily put this forward as a massive behavioral change. It's just an adaptation to the forested area, mm -hmm. to uh, the constraints of uh, predation, in wooded areas. Um, and there's still a lot of coyotes that will do what Western coyotes do, which is usually uh, form a family unit, what we call a nuclear family unit. So it's mom, dad, and the pups of the year. And that's it. Is that a pack? Well, a pack is a family. So yes, it is a pack. Mm -hmm. But it's not like some wolves, not all wolves, but some wolves that will form multi-generational uh, packs, you know, where aunts, uncles, cousins, sometimes even grandparents are going to be part of that social unit. We know some of those packs that can sometimes be very big, 20 individuals or so. It's been documented in the U.S. and Canada and Russia, etc. Uh, but, you know, usually 
our habitats now in this world are too damaged to actually be able to even support uh, packs of wolves or coyotes, for that matter, of that size. So, um, and that's another problem that coyotes have. The bad rap that they have is they form those huge packs, and it's often because people hear them. And uh, that's another issue, but they, they're very good at making themselves sound like um, there's a lot more of them around. Uh, one of my former mentor, um, Fred Arrington, uh, wrote quite a bit about this, actually, in Wolves and Coyotes. It's called the Bogest effect. And it's this idea that when they feel threatened, they will actually uh, break the unison when they actually howl. And it makes a pack of two or three sound like there's 15 individuals. And you hear that quite a bit. People say, oh, yeah, I was hearing them. They were in my backyard. I couldn't see them, but it was at least 10 of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's probably just, you know, mom, dad, and a few pups. And that's enough to <laughs> make <laughs> make yourself uh, feel like you're, you're being uh, invaded, basically. Well, and that's interesting, too, because it's the, the – it's, it's almost the expectation that there's something there. And that, again, comes back to that fear. So you hear what – you know, and, and again, I'll, I'll admit this, too, is you hear two or three, and it could be 10 to 20. Like, there's, it's very difficult to tell unless I think you probably have, you know, intentionally spent a great deal of time listening and saying, oh, yes, that was two to three. And you have evidence of that to sort of compare it. Uh, mm-hmm. And then talking about the size, you know, in my home, I've got dogs that are sized from two and a half pounds to 60 pounds. Um, and I see a coyote and I say, yeah, that could be anywhere from 25 pounds to 50 pounds. I can't tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting how fear really has kind of created our expectation of what we are seeing or uh, seeing or hearing um, and at times feeling, I suppose. Uh, and that also then gets exasperated by by certain individuals who seek to profit or seek to exploit the situation, as, as I think you put it. Um, and in the documentary, there's two individuals. One is a trapper. One is a, a hunter. Um, and this, this is, again, why I, I have advised people to be very cautious in watching this documentary. There are scenes that are very, very graphic. Um, and uh, in particular, very upsetting to me was the hunter watching in slow motion over and over himself shooting a coyote uh, at an extreme range, which I think kind of demonstrates a bit of a callous attitude about this. But uh, one of the things, and there was a couple of comments made that the way this was put together didn't provide the opportunity to respond. So one of the comments made, and this is very, very common amongst trappers, is saying, well, the population's too high and we need to take steps to reduce it to a natural level or to a safe level or a fair level or whatever they want to call it. Um, so I'm going to ask you straight up, what's the exact number of coyotes that's appropriate for Nova Scotia? <laughs> I don't think anybody knows because again, I mean, they're fairly new in this ecosystem. Um, I think the appropriate number is whatever works for them. And what I mean by this is, uh, you know, give nature and ecology a chance, let them figure it out. Uh, I don't think any intervention is needed. And I think we've known this for a long time now with all kinds of um, wildlife, um, preys and predators that intervening often has no effect whatsoever or may even have a deleterious effect. As far as I know, there's no evidence in Nova Scotia that there's a unbalance in uh, between preys and predators. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, some people have used the, the, the arguments that they go after deer quite a bit. Well, actually, they don't. They mostly eat voles and mice, grouse, uh, uh, you know, small uh, ground birds. Um, uh, so again, uh, you know, rodents uh, and 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 hares, and uh, that's it, really. I mean, and occasionally, yeah, they may be lucky, and uh, uh, especially if there's two strong adults, uh, they they may get a deer. Um, so what? Um, <laughs> You know, uh, it's uh, we 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 think and this is also debated a little bit that we may have had wolves at some point in Nova Scotia. Well, they took the niche, basically. In fact, in fact, in their migration east, that's what they did. Uh, They took uh, the habitats and niches of of wolves that used to be in uh, uh, in Ontario, in Quebec, in Maine. Um, They just filled that niche. 
So who are we to get in there and say we need to reduce the numbers based on what evidence exactly? Because from the deer number I see, there's nothing to worry about. Um, so we, we need what we call a mesopredator, which is a medium-sized predator um, uh, in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. Uh, I mean, they share a lot of the uh, prey uh, array, I guess, with, uh, you could say, with bobcats, I would say. Um, and again, there's no evidence that there is like increased competition between those two species to survive. Uh, are they doing well? Sure, they are. They seem to be extremely adaptive and well adapted. And that's coyotes for you. I mean, you know, th there's this old, I old idea that you can divide most animals between specialists and generalists. And Bobcats and coyotes are your typical generalists, like humans, actually. Uh, wolves and lynx and cougars are your typical specialists. The advantage of being a generalist is that you're not committed to just one type of habitat or one type of prey. You have a diverse diet. You can live almost anywhere in prairie type of environment, around marshes, in woods, and you'll do well. Well, that's coyotes for you. They are extremely adaptable. Uh, behaviorally, but the rest of their phenotype, meaning the, the other parts of them, like the, the anatomy, the physiology, the biochemistry, etc., is is uh, resilient, if you want, to changes in challenging environments. Yeah, that's, <laughs> now, they're, they're also very happy to uh, eat fallen fruits and vegetables and uh, human waste and things like that, and I know that leads to a lot of conflict, and that's sort of a different story that may in fact play into the very first question we asked. Uh, but, um, it is, it is interesting that they, even if there is a low population of rodents in an area, and I think of an area like, uh, Annapolis Valley, for instance, in Nova Scotia, uh, that I visited, uh, that there's a lot of apples there. There's a lot of, uh, vegetation there that they could probably quite happily get along based primarily on that. Well, you know, if you look at the scats and we collected a lot of cats and looked at a lot of cats over, over, over the years in Cape Breton and elsewhere, actually, I continue to do it occasionally, uh, as a hobby, if fun. you want to, <laughs> just for fun uh, around here. <clears throat> well, the tracking dogs will find them for you anyway. Uh, but it, it's, uh, this time of year, actually, August, uh, especially late August and September, they eat a lot of berries. In fact, under a scat, it's mostly what you find. Wow. Uh, so they're very omnivorous that way, and and wolves can be as well. Actually, it's most carnivores, uh, contrary to what people think, are actually have a quite diverse diet. Uh, so they'll basically eat whatever is is available to them. Uh, not not like raccoons, for instance. Um, so that way, um, it means that the the diet tends to change quite a bit. Now, obviously, it's a seasonal thing. So in the winter, um, they have to turn to other things. Uh, vegetation and berries are gone. So that's when, yeah, meat is going to be more important. Hmm. Yeah. It's very much like the Tom Brady diet, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think talking about predators, and there's another one that sort of that plays into this as well, but something that I hear a lot, and I don't recall whether or not it was stated in this documentary or not, but it is a very, very common statement, is that they have no natural predators, uh, and therefore the populations need to be managed. Now, I say this, and I hear this, of coyotes, and I hear this of grizzly bears. Um, so when we're talking predator prey, is it okay to have a top level or an apex uh, predator that really doesn't have that sort of upper echelon of something attacking it? Well, that's how nature, you know, made things to evolve. I mean, I mean, the top predator is often is often human. Mm -hmm. uh, but now, you know, in, in this kind of weird kind of artificial selection we went through, <laughs> uh, the way we took over in, in ways that are relatively unnatural, let's put ourselves out of the equation for a minute. Um, obviously, it's common to have top predators that don't have predators themselves. And, and that's certainly not an argument to say, well, we should intervene and be the top predator. That, that, that makes absolutely no sense from an ecological, biological perspective. So, no, in my opinion, yeah, it's totally fine if they're the top predators in a specific environment. That's fine. Um, unless you have, like, very, very strong evidence that they're depleting. Like, it happened in some countries, right, where some species have been introduced mm -hmm. by accident or, or voluntarily in some cases. If they're really depleting another species, 
to extinction. Okay, that's another issue. Australia and New Zealand are tons of examples of this. But we don't have that going on here at all. As far as we can tell, there's a balance. And yes, some years there's, there'll be more of them. Other years there'll be less. And, and let's not forget that there's evidence that with generalists like coyotes, especially coyotes actually, the, the more you kill them, the more they reproduce. Uh, you know, the, the thing is this, is people forget that by clearing out the top predators or mesopredators, uh, in, in their case, the ones that are right about in the middle, um, at least in principle in North America, um, you, you give a chance in the year that follows for all those preys to bounce back. So that means that within a year or two of doing those calls and those bounties, you're actually increasing the amount of food for the next litters of coyotes to come. And, and they flourish. They come back. This is why there's this bounce-back effect of coyotes after calls and bounties that's been very, very well documented. And that's one of the ones that really bothered me was the uh, there was a clip of you explaining that, or the, 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 the very least a sort of that initial thought of um, coyotes when persecuted will increase in population. And the hunter in the film saying, well, there's no common sense in that. And then they just move forward. And it, it really bothered me that uh, a scientific concept was dismissed out of hand because he didn't understand it and there was no follow-up. Um, and well, Yeah, and, and you know what? Common sense and science don't always are not always the same. <laughs> yes, very uh, true. Right? So uh, science uh, brings its own conclusions that often contradict common sense. Um, maybe, maybe more often than not, actually. Um, so, I yes, look, the the folk logic here behind this is, uh, I understand where it's coming from. Um, I mean, this is why I think we're always hopeful that one day we'll get rid of all the rats in a city like Toronto, but we all know this will never happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's uh, it's very unlikely that we could eradicate, not, not that that's what they propose, actually, or... I'm not saying that hunters and trappers are proponents of just getting rid of coyotes completely, but uh, this idea that we must intervene, um, I think, is misguided. Well, and I think that's sort of the the follow-up ethical question, and this is one that I've been trying to think of ways to talk more about, is the concept that they say, well, science says we can do this, right? Because uh, studies have shown you can take up to for example, 70% of a coyote population, and in two years, it will rebound. Uh, And I I think the actual number is like 75 or 76 or something. But uh, uh, regardless, they say, well, science says we can do this. And, you know, it's sustainable that way. And as a scientist, I want to ask you, just because the numbers show it can, does that necessarily mean we should? Uh, Well, no, obviously not. And, and... But to what end, anyway? I mean, this, this is, again, a question we need to ask. What, what are we trying to do? Um, uh, and the question, too, is let's not forget, what, who's benefiting from this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, are we talking about incentives that are given to um, in the context of calls or, or bounties? Um, is, that, is, is it meant to stimulate the economy? Is it meant to increase the deer population for a year or two? Uh, I mean, what's the goal of this? Uh, uh, you know, it, it's so the ethics of it, I think, um, uh, resides in a sense in in um, the, the 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 initial motivation. What are we trying to do? Why are we doing this? And if there's no reason really um, to save the environment or save another species or or protect humans or whatever, then let's drop it. Um, you know, um, or go hunt squirrels or whatever. And I'm not saying that you should go hunt squirrels, but you know what I mean. It's just, I'm going to say that sound clip. Yeah. yeah, Uh, but why, why coyotes, right? Why, why, but now we're going back to that fear, the psychology of it, which I think is interesting. And I think it's the same kind of problem, uh, that we have with the wolves. It's this idea that we, we, we seem to be very much triggered by this idea of a pack animal going after us. And there's a long history and culture of this, including in Europe, uh, with the wolves, of thinking that that's worse than anything else. That's why wolves are more demonized, for instance, than bears. I'm much more scared of grizzlies 
than I am of any canid in 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 the in the pack. That's because I know them well. Mm-hmm. But for most people, this idea that there's multiple animals going after you that captures the imagination, and this is where the fear comes from, I think. And that's why most canids, um, or a lot of canids, especially wolves and coyotes now, uh, have a tendency to, um, you know, stimulate people's imagination and, and fear. Yeah, and there's certainly, I mean, a history of it, whether we're talking about, you know, wily coyote trying to get the roadrunner way back to the big bad wolf uh, in many incarnations. We are taught from childhood to be afraid of these types of animals. Uh, and I think, you know, as statistics show, many of us have had negative experiences with dogs, which kind of maybe reinforces that. Um, you know, I, for one, have woken up with a two and a half pound chihuahua trying to choke me out in the middle of the night. <laughs> um, fortunately, she has no teeth, so the fear wasn't really made as a connection, but um, it can cause uh, a great deal of interesting reactions to the world around us. And in that vein, I thought, one aspect that was very interesting was the uh, the young gentleman who's a uh, sheep rancher experimenting yeah. with ways to coexist. Did you see a lot of that happening sort of during these this extended uh, bounty and cull or, or at the very least just the sort of the ongoing fear that developed? Or was it primarily that um, folksy, uh, we've got to kill them all to protect whatever it is we need to protect? Yeah, I think that approach dominated at the time um there were a few people that were thinking about alternative methods um what a lot of people have forgotten is in the mid 90s and this is even before i was um uh, sorry in the mid 80s so i was actually in new brunswick back then this is before i i came to nova scotia there was actually a, a relatively short program of trying to uh, use um uh, cheap dogs uh, not cheap dogs sorry uh, uh, Flock garden dogs, like great prairies, etc., mm-hmm. to uh, to protect flocks, um, and um, it didn't work so well because the farmers, if I remember well the story, um, preferred just being reimbursed by the government for each loss uh, mm-hmm. than actually investing any money towards a dog that was actually, if I remember well, given to them. Um, so, but that's also because it's not part of our culture. Because if you go in Europe. Um, it's clear that, you know, they've been doing this for centuries. It doesn't always work, but it, it seems to be just part of what they do. It's one of the many tools they have to actually keep uh, wolves at bay. And here in North America now, I think it's growing. If you look online, even on Facebook, there's a number of groups that are actually pushing. And it's probably, you know, it's a market, right? It's an industry in a sense, but um, because they're breeders. But they, they, they push the flock guarding dog uh, idea quite a bit uh, with some evidence that, uh it, it can work. Uh, it's certainly a deterrent, at least for one small coyote. Um, uh, they, they would certainly think more than twice, three or four times before approaching a flock that's uh, guarded by a great perini, you know. Um, but it's it's one tool among others. Um, and when people were worried here, um, I, I was also pushing the concept um, of using um, uh, hazing as a method of dealing with uh, problem coyotes, um, uh, which in itself is uh, diffi- difficult to define. What is a problem coyote, right? I mean, what now and what it was before Taylor Mitchell died are two different things. Um, so there's an hist- historical aspect to this, and people change their mind about what a problem coyote is. Uh, a coyote that stares at, at you from half a kilometer away is a problem coyote now. Yeah. Uh, when otherwise people in the past would have, before 2009, would have completely uh, ignored it. Yeah, well, that's even I see uh, in some of the suburbs. Uh, the, the area where I grew up right now is dealing with a lot of fear about coyotes. And it's very frustrating because it's uh, uh, very much a bedroom community uh, that is recognized for being green and having lots of forests and ravines and stuff. And people are saying, oh, I saw a coyote walk down the street today. And they say it with these, these like, uh, uh, you know, saucer wide eyes and, uh, it's like, can you believe it? I'm like, yeah, I can. That's a great way mm-hmm. to get around the streets. Why wouldn't mm-hmm. you use it? Um, but again, I think so much of that too, is it's, it's that combination of fear and exposure. They're just not used to it. Um, 
Yeah, and I think, you know, it's because, again, we're a little bit more aware of what's going on. The media have pushed this quite a bit, as you know, even before Telemetrial, actually. I think, it, you know, um, uh, and there's documentaries out there about raccoons and urban coyotes and everything. So people are very aware that um, it, it's happening, but it probably has always been happening. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, certainly with raccoons, there's nothing new there. Um, how much have coyotes changed over uh, the last few centuries? And, and, and to go back to the hybridization issue, uh, is that a factor? Well, I don't necessarily think so. And actually, I'm going to make a provocative uh, suggestion here that if hybridization has something to do with coyotes getting closer to humans, it would probably be uh, more about those dog gene percentages than it has to do with the wolf gene percentages. Because if the wolf genes percentages had any kind of effect on the behavior of those coyotes, they would actually try to get away from humans, not closer. So um, now I don't want to suggest here that we have to start worrying about the dog-coyote uh, hybrids, although maybe we should, because apparently now that's a trendy hybrid to have as a pet. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's it's a problematic issue. I mean, there's so many layers to it. It's, it's, uh, it, it's incredible. Well, and even in that theory, you would have to then say, like, the... the decide where the line is where hybridization is taking place so say we said ontario quebec and uh, the maritimes uh, or atlantic canada so anything west of that is there that similar behavior happening and realistically there is we see it all over north america um and i would make the the arguments that's the sorry my my neighbor is apparently having trouble closing a door and it's causing the entire front of the house to shake <laughs> um, so I don't know if my mic's picking that up, but, uh, I, I would say that the one thing in common that we see in all of these conflict scenarios is the behavior of people being sort of like when you change the behavior of people, all of a sudden the behavior of the coyotes is no longer uh, a problem, uh, because it's, you know, it's, and I've gone out on, you know, some of the investigations with Coyote Watch Canada. Uh, we've done some videos with Stanley Park Ecology, conversations with researchers like yourself, and when you start addressing those attractants, uh, all of a sudden, they don't have any interest in being around us anymore. So it's it's interesting how that uh, can kind of play out. Um, but I, I thought to wrap up, the, the, the final question to ask is the question that, it's not even a question, it's a statement in the film that I feel should have been a question, and that's bad coyote. So following... The, 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 the death of Taylor Mitchell, the, the media coverage. Uh, I, I know you've met her mother uh, in that time. Uh, you've done more research. You've read more research. You've done tracking investigations. You've done all of this work. Are there bad coyotes or are there good coyotes who just have a bad rap? Uh, um, well, again, we go back to how do you define bad or mm -hmm. bold bold is often the term that you use now um to be honest with you i don't think there's any bad coyotes in the sense that i think we're always responsible for the bad or the bold uh you know in most situations we know that waste management is behind problems around schools uh in suburbs downtown cities where you find coyotes um like the raccoons uh they'll come to your garbage so we are massively responsible for, for that. Um, and uh, they're not stupid, so they just take advantage of the food that's basically left in front of them. Um, does that make them bad or just smart? Mm -hmm. And obviously, like, uh, you know, when we used to have open dumps here in Nova Scotia, there used to be a lot more um, negative interactions between humans, mostly teenagers, actually, and bears. Well, we don't have open dumps now anymore. Um, so, you know, those numbers went down. What I'm saying is I think we're responsible for this in a sense. Um, we are behind, uh, them feeling more comfortable approaching us. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's, I think that's the thing we have to keep in mind is that we, 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 we created this problem in a sense. So yeah, we can probably also address it ourselves to, to reverse this. Um, as much as we can. So waste management, hazing. Um, uh, I mean, there are things we'll never stop doing, like encroaching on their habitat. 
clearly that's that's not going to happen. Uh, we'll continue doing that. But um, I, I think we just need to uh, learn to live with the new reality that we created. This is a different culture. I mean, we, we deal now with people that have no idea what nature is. They think they do. They have their own versions of it. You know, they think it's uh, walking in the woods or at least in a park somewhere with, with uh, uh, you know, your, your iPod on listening to loud music. This, this is a disconnect with nature also that we live in this, in this culture that we, we need to address in a sense. Um, if the presence of any wildlife around you is seen as a problem, yeah, we do have a problem then. Uh, so I think education is very important. Um, I think we uh, we shouldn't hide any of this um, to our kids. I think we need to teach them about it um, so we can learn from our mistakes, um, help us coming up with solutions um, to, uh, you know, uh, decrease the chances of conflicts with wildlife. Um, I think that's very, very important. To learn more about Dr. Gabois's research, visit his website at www.semon.gabois.org. This was an emotional episode discussing a tragic death, a massive cull, and addressing fear and how it affects our lives. I appreciate commentary and hope that all listeners will keep in mind the very real costs to all parties that the 2009 incident, the killing of thousands of coyotes, and this documentary had when discussing it. You can find ongoing conversations about episodes at facebook.com slash Defender Radio, on Twitter at Defender Radio, and on Instagram at Howie Michael. Thanks for joining the show, and please do take a moment to subscribe to stay up to date on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn. For Defender Radio, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.